These are the sounds of Chris's dreams, these African drums. The song is called Manjane. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's by uh, Leon Mobley, who also is credited as choreographing one of the choreographers of this dance troupe that's performing in, in the beginning here of Chris's dream. Oh, that's not music right there? Yeah, it's an original track. I wonder if it was uh, composed for the series or if this is taken from some of his previous work. Hmm, I guess previous work. I mean, it's pretty niche to have this music be even being played at all. Uh, how do you mean? Uh, I mean, I just can't imagine there's a huge market, especially in 1990s. Oh, uh, for world music. Yeah, this type of music. Yeah, I was. what was I listening to recently that was talking about world music? I think it was like an interview with David Byrne, or he, he wrote an article for, I can't remember the publication, the title being, I hate world music, but the meaning is actually he hates the term world music because there's obviously so much, uh, so many different genres and styles and different types of music that is all lumped into one category. It basically just means music that isn't like American, you know, his world oh, music now. That sounds like something David Byrne would do. Yeah. You know that David Byrne has done a lot of uh, musicals. Really? Wait, you were telling yeah. me about this. Oh yeah. What, what, what is this musical that you were telling me about? Yeah, he did Here Lies Love. Yeah, the stage production for the public theater. And that's the one about the... I believe it's the First Lady of the Philippines. Interesting. Yeah, which is, uh, I've been told, I haven't seen it yet or listened to, I, I really want to, but I've been told it's fantastic. And that yeah. uh, totally seems like it's in a wheelhouse of Mr. Byrne. Big fan of any David Byrne production. That sounds great. Uh, what are we talking about here today, Charles? Oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. We are talking about Northern Exposure, 1990s CBS television series. And we are the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we overanalyze every single episode. My name is Charles, uh, and here's my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee. That's right. You know, we're co-hosts together. The, the whole shtick is, uh, I've seen the show plenty of times. And this is the first time that Charles is watching this episode. Every episode that we do, it's a new episode for Charles. Yeah. I'm looking at it with 2019 eyes. Oh, I yeah. gotta say this episode <laughs> really changes in 2019 eyes. Oh yeah. So it does, it does not hold up in uh, today's climate. I, mm, in some <laughs> ways it does. And in other ways it totally doesn't. Okay. Uh, let me okay, put it yeah. that way. We'll, we'll explore this, I guess, as we continue. I should also say that it is sort of our mission statement of this podcast to expand the reach of the show by introducing the series to friends, acquaintances, strangers who have never seen the show before. It's uh, not an easy show to get your hands on. So typically we'll loan a DVD or I get my friend to watch an episode um, and, and sort of hear the outsider perspective, like the fresh look, just like Charles, you know, but completely out of context now. Yeah, we haven't had a stranger, though, do a guest commentary, right? Not yet. Oh, there, you had suggested like a man on the street interview type thing where we run around and show clips of the show to someone, to strangers <laughs> on the street. Yeah, I'm a big uh, proponent of that idea. I really do feel that that would be a very fun episode if we just got a complete random stranger. It would be a little bit more of a production, but I think if we found the right episode of Northern Exposure for that um, sort of st structure style, we should go for it maybe. Yeah, maybe we could be promoting the next trend in YouTube videos. Like, you know, for a while there was a trend on YouTube where people would be doing quote unquote social experiments, but they were really <laughs> just like terrible pranks to pull on people. Yeah, yeah, this could be it. Maybe this could be the next positive thing where we're like, I would Man like to show you. podcasting? Yeah, that... yeah, exactly. I think we should turn that into a thing. We'll see how well it goes or, or if the idea even kicks off, but... Uh... Probably not. 
So uh, let's talk about the episode at hand. This is season two, episode seven. The title is Roots, I guess, obviously um, referring to the Alex Haley novel or um, huge compendium of text. It's a, it's a big book, right? Yeah, yeah. Though most people associate Roots with the television series. Right, based on the, uh, the literary work. Yeah, and once again, we open with Chris. He seems to be a popular figure to open up on. Yeah, I mean, he's, he usually will have the uh, sort of the morning sermons on the radio. Uh, this time it's in an opening gambit, and we hear this music that we played at the beginning of the episode. Loud, rhythmic uh, drumming. He, he runs out of his camper, which is uh, where he's sleeping, and uh, there's all these African dancers in traditional dress. There's some torches, lots of drummers. And he's kind of just uh, exploring it, kind of walking around in his long johns. He doesn't really start dancing until later. But this dream is its almost like a curiosity to him. Uh, at some point, the music cuts out and we're kind of like brought into a wide shot. And it's just Chris alone. There's no dancers anymore. And the music has stopped. Yeah, you can totally tell that they're doing outside lighting on the scene. Oh, like yeah. You can see the uh, giant lights that are being brought in. I, it's been a minute since I've watched this episode. I think I watched it almost a week ago. But did you watch this episode today or yesterday? I did. I did. So you probably have a, a clearer visual memory, but... What made you think of the, what made you notice that? Was it like, could you tell like where the pools of light were coming from? Or? Yeah, it felt like uh, me and you both have experience in this. I don't know if our audience does, but when we were both in band together, uh, marching band specifically, we were in high school and we would have to go into the middle of the football field and do our little show. And in the football field, there's giant lights that shine down on you while it's nighttime. So I remember that sensation. And if yeah. I got reminded of that it, again, because there would be these giant flashes that would just flood down into the scene where the dancers are and where Chris was wondering, but in the outside was still incredibly dark. So that's what reminded me of it. Yeah. And I was guessing, I was like, yeah, they probably just had giant studio lights up above. For sure. Yeah. Then we get to the next plot, I would say. I, I would almost say that this is the main plot. The, uh -huh. Maybe they're kind of equal, but basically... Joel and Maggie are having kind of a, a tiff together. It turns out that Joel's roof is having some problems that is causing his AC to go haywire. So yeah, it's like, it's, it's, I forgot about this. It's when he's showering, the ceiling falls on him, right? He's like in the shower and his ceiling starts falling down. Yeah. I don't think that would actually work though. I, I don't know that much about engineering or architecture, but I feel like if you're just hammering on the roof of a building, you wouldn't just cause like an entire hole in the roof like it was with Maggie. Like mm, that's true. It, it didn't yeah. look structurally sound at all. Like there would be plaster, yeah. there would be wood in between it. If it was that flimsy to begin with, I don't think the house would have lasted that long. Actually, um, I might have a little bit of uh, secondhand experience with this. My landlord who lives on the other side, uh, her ceiling fell down a couple months ago legit like her entire kitchen ceiling fell but that was because uh the insulation in her ceiling or above her ceiling uh, had gotten maybe wet or damp or just too absorbent of the climate here and the the weight was too much for her ceiling to bear so yeah i think you're right i don't think just hammering on a roof would cause a ceiling to crack or fall down but perhaps the ceiling is under a lot of stress. I don't know what Joel's got up in his attic. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's easier to demonstrate a scene like that in a way. Yeah, so. more likely it's just the screenwriter <laughs> trying to... <laughs> 
show you that <laughs> visually that Joel has a hole in his roof now. Yeah. I actually really like the shot or the sequence of events that's leading up afterwards because Joel and Maggie have a little tiff and Joel also says that his truck isn't working. Yeah. Maggie needs to help fix the truck. And he decides to walk into work and there's a small little shot of him just walking yeah. along the side of the road. And I really enjoyed that for some reason because it almost shows the daily life of him living in Sicily. So it shows the entire background, the environment and him just walking on a yeah. empty road. There's no other cars next to him. He's perfectly safe. There isn't going to be any motorcycles or any other vehicles that are going to hit him. And he just arrives at work. And it's a simple scene. And maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I really liked it. Definitely showcases the landscape, the environment, like you said. And uh, the music here is really great, too. It's this wonderful sort of... It's got some like flute in there and a lot of clangy electric guitar gives you that native feel sort of with the flute, you know, very cool. <laughs> I guess we should also shout out, this is a return appearance of uh, the director, Sandy Smolin. Woo, coming in hot. Is this his third time? This is the third episode that he's directed. Third time's the charm or maybe not the charm. Yeah, yeah. I really hope he comes back again after this. I can't remember. I feel like he has another appearance, but I don't know how many episodes they're going to let him direct in this series but so far it's been pretty good uh, and like you said this sequence is a great example of uh building this feeling you know of just joel yeah it's showing the town. atmosphere of sicily yeah so he gets to his office and adam is there though unfortunately not valerie mahaffey i was really sad oh yeah i remember you were a his big fan of eve there. Apparently, Eve is in Geneva getting a lamb's blood treatment. What did he say? Lamb's blood treatment? I was so confused. Uh, I don't think it's lamb's blood, is it? Yeah, so apparently lamb's blood treatment is what's written uh, in what the what the actors say in the scene, but I have no idea what that means. I couldn't find anything about it online. Yeah, the court stenographer read it back, and I am wrong. <laughs> lamb's blood, I have no idea. But so that's the excuse that the excuse for why Eve is not present. Um, Adam sort of just like creeps up on Joel in this scene. But I think it's after Joel freaks out, Marilyn kind of chimes back in uh, and she says, oh, yeah, Mr. Adam is here. How does Marilyn know Adam? Did she just like meet him just now? Because remember, there's this whole sort of um, mythology that the town of Sicily has built around Adam. And in previous episodes, no one believes Joel that Adam is uh, real. Hmm, that's a really good point. I think that just adds to the elusiveness or aloofness of <laughs> Marilyn. Like she would be the only character that knows yeah. Adam. But even later, I mean, Adam, spoiler alert, we're going to get into it. But Adam starts working at the brick this episode and no one <laughs> seems to be freaking out. I mean, hmm. he's not really like Frankenstein or Bigfoot. If you look at him, he just looks like a homeless dude. But, you know, if if the town was giving Joel so much gruff about inventing this character, Adam, now they just seem to be accepting him as reality. Hmm. That's a good point, man. I, I'd never, I didn't put that together. The reason why Adam shows up in Joel's office is he wants $100. Yeah, he needs it for insurance premium benefits. Yeah. Is that like... We know Adam to be a compulsive liar mm -hmm. and a hundred dollars is, you know, not a whole lot of money, but it's not a little money. It's, it's definitely a lump of cash. And later on in the episode, Adam will make a bet and, and take up a job for the simple bet of a hundred dollars. Why do you think he really needs a hundred dollars? Why would he come to Joel for one hundred dollars? It's not really, hmm. it's never really explained. My reasoning is that they come to Joel 
they as in Adam and Eve come to Joel because they just need outside help and Joel is an outsider himself so he's the closest that they can associate with in order to aid them and in some weird twisted view of their mind they think that like Joel owes them the help (laughs) because they're never kind about it I mean they lock him up they chain him (laughs) up they don't apologize they just think it's par for the course yeah. for Joel to even help them. So I guess that's why Adam just scrolls up to his house <laughs> or to his office and ask him for a hundred dollars. Well, I'm not complaining. I love it when Adam uh, returns to the show. He was kind of overlooked in season two, right? We didn't see any Adam in season two, I don't think. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I'm not even too sure why they even included the plot of Adam because I thought it was going to be looped into the plot of Joel and Elaine. Because of the Dear Joel letter thing when they talked about last time we see Adam. Yeah. But you could have completely written out that side plot of Adam and the episode would have remained the same. There's nothing that Adam did that affected the other two plots. Yeah. So I'm confused as to why they brought Adam back just for this. Well, I'll say, I think we've talked about our favorite sort of formulaic structures for, for Northern Exposure episodes. I'll say that there are a lot of great episodes that uh, the, the different plot lines don't connect always, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe we agree sometimes uh, when they all connect, they're, they're all playing on the same theme or they all connect in some way. That's usually better, but I won't write this off and say it's a mistake necessarily. Um, it, it is maybe an outlier, but I think it's okay that it doesn't connect with the rest of the plot, mm-hmm. especially, you know, the further we get into Northern Exposure, the more we get into the ensemble cast and kind of get further away from Joel and kind of explore the different townsfolk and the people surrounding Sicily. Though this episode does focus a lot on Joel and Maggie. And uh, yeah, that's what we're getting into. Do you want to do that or do you want to run into Adam's subplot? No, we can do Joel and Maggie and Elaine. Though I have to say right before we get off of this that maybe there is just one little thing that Adam did that contributes to that plot. Right when Elaine walks into the office, Joel has to explain to Elaine that this man that's in his office, he has no idea who he is. And he uses the line. I'm sorry, he just walked into my office. I mean, I hardly know him. That's okay. And I thought that that was some subtext for Elaine. She just walked into his office and Joel, in reality, doesn't really know her that well Oh, okay. anymore. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. And yeah, like you said, a lot of people just stroll into Joel's office unannounced. Marilyn is like not very good at, uh, I guess, you know, holding a, a waiting room, I guess. But whatever, Joel's having a slow day at work, so I guess she just allows people to come on in. Yeah, so we can go into the plot of Joel, Maggie, and Elaine, and it turns out that Dwayne and or Dwight, his real name <laughs> yeah, is Dwight, but Dwight. Uh, Joel calls him Dwayne, um, had a heart attack, yeah. coronary, coronary artery, artery disease, is, runs in his family. There's a really great moment when Elaine enters into Joel's office and he closes the door behind her. He's effectively now in the corner of the room and Elaine is sort of giving the exposition. She's apologizing for breaking up with him over essentially like a Dear John letter. Dear Joel letter is what they call it. And so as she's saying this, the camera just stays on Joel. We never cut back to her as she's sort of giving this uh, exposition. And the camera slowly pushes in on Joel. And you can see, you know, Rob Morrow doing a great job acting. You can see how much this memory hurts him. And the, the effect of the camera pushing in on Joel as he's in that corner definitely 
gives him that feeling of sort of cowering and like cowering away from this uh, negative emotion that he's felt in the past. I thought that was a really interesting way to photograph uh, that moment, that little exchange. Oh, yeah, I didn't catch that now that you bring that up. But I love it when the show does that whenever they can utilize the camera and actually use film theory i i'm terrible at reading film <laughs> theory i have i never can catch them i never do so i'm really glad you caught that one well the the thing usually is like it's it's something that you never really notice uh consciously it should be a subconscious effect you know but that's mm-hmm. what that's what creates those feelings it's uh their techniques you know mm-hmm. yeah i in the context of the conversation i have to say that i'm more on joel's side because okay. I do believe that she ended things really terribly. I mean, at least in this moment of the show, all Joel has for information to rely on is that her old husband died. She's now going to him for emotional support, but she's not taking into account the amount of damage that she wrecked onto Joel, right. which was really terrible. Like I've even when she did it, uh, I believe it was the pilot of season two, like the yeah. first episode of it. I was still feeling the same way. I was like, that's a really crappy way to end a relationship. Like, why would you ever do that? So I don't agree with Maggie's assessment that she's just looking for a friend because that's not what friends do in the first place. Yeah. Sort of to back up what you're saying, there's the scene right right after Elaine comes to Joel in his office. Um, mm-hmm. At some point after that, Joel is talking with Maggie or rather she's talking with him. She says, can't you think of something else besides your own selfish concerns? And his response is, no, frankly, I can't. This may come as a surprise to you, but men have feelings too. And so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like he's he's aware of his heart being broken. And he's, I guess, to your argument is like, that's not an unserious matter. Uh, something that really wrecked him. But I think the point that Maggie is trying to make is... Uh, grow up. You know, you need to be able to forgive and move on with your life because he has effectively moved on with his life. He just hasn't seen Elaine since they've broken up. So it's kind of rehashing all these um, nasty feelings that he's has. Yeah. I would say that there are moments in life where it's kind of acceptable, at least in my opinion, and I might catch a lot of flack for this, where it's okay to run away from the problem or at least not <laughs> confront it because the amount of emotional damage Trauma, that it can do. Uh, yeah, and this is one of those situations. I think when you see people that you were deeply involved with or you really pined over or mm-hmm. you just had a lot of emotional baggage with, particularly if it's intimate, if you ever see them out again, like out in public, mm-hmm. it can just unwind all of those feelings back from yeah. years ago. You're brought back to that same place as if you were, you know, like walking the old hallways of high school. You're suddenly brought back to your high school self. It's the same way on that where you're brought back to that old relationship that you were just in. And a lot of times those feelings can devastate you. So... At least for me, I feel that sometimes you don't need to unravel that spool. Like it's better to just Mm -hmm. not see that. Like what are you gaining out of this? Uh, In fact, your day has probably just been (laughs) ruined just by seeing this person. Well, Like it sucks. Thankfully for Joel, it seems to work out and we'll get there towards the end. They seem to reach some sort of 
closure by the end. But I think... Yeah, which is... I'm really happy for him for that closure. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I just no, wanted to say okay. this real quickly. Yeah, it's great that he got the, this exposure, but like 9.99 out of 10 times in life, you don't get that. All you do is that one party feels incredibly screwed that he has to experience these emotions again. The other party just feels really awkward, and then you just move on with your life. But it's like, why did that even have to happen in the first place? I don't know. I mean, I think there's definitely... Uh, I think both parties have to kind of be ready for it, you know, and maybe sometimes, Mm -hmm. a lot of times, it's usually never that way. But uh, sometimes good things can come from sort of trying to mend that, those broken hearts, those feelings. But uh, I can, you know, I think your your argument is super valid uh, either way, you know. But I think also here, Fleischman can be validated for his feelings, yes. Um, But I think the problem, he's not completely innocent, I guess, is that the right word? Because he's still a little too bitter. Like his first assumption is that Elaine has come back because she wants to take him back. Uh, when, you know, we'll see as things develop throughout this episode. But I honestly believe that Elaine is there because she's wrecked and she's looking for a friend. What do you think? Mm. At least think in the that- at least in the beginning. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think I do believe that she is looking for a friend. I don't want to accuse her of her ulterior motives. I'm just saying that <laughs> as an action of a friend, that's not what friends do in the first place. So mm. why should Joel have to offer her uh, some kindness? I'm not saying that he shouldn't offer her kindness. I just think it's within his rights to withhold that kindness. Um, it's up to him I on see, however yeah. way he wants to proceed right there. And Maggie accuses him of being callous, but... I, just to me, I feel like Joel had the option of choosing whichever way he wanted to walk. And I think I think he ultimately, I, I think Maggie forces him into it, but I think he ultimately does choose a mature, grown-up way to deal with these things. You know, he's not he, he, gonna, yeah. he's not gonna like neglect Elaine, who obviously needs, she's not in a good situation. I think Joel is in a much happier state of life than he was in the beginning of uh, the, you know, the pilot episode. You know, mm-hmm. he's acclimated to to his uh, his lifestyle. And he's, um, I think he's fully gotten over Elaine. It's just sort of like seeing, uh, seeing her again and being uh, reacquainted with her brings up all this uh, muckiness. You're right. And you are right that that's probably the more quote unquote mature way to handle it for us, for him to go comfort her. Maybe she just shouldn't have put Joel into that position yeah. in the first place. No, no, it, like I, she shouldn't have done it I'm not saying, at all. I'm not saying that it was out of place, but what I am trying to say is Joel's in a good position to help her and he eventually yeah. does. So I thank God he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, Maggie basically drives them together in her truck back to Joel's place where Elaine will crash for the night. And that's, this is the scene when I think Joel does the switch in his head because uh, he hears Elaine crying. We get a really weird shot. Like uh, Joel is peeping through like a hole in the door to see mm-hmm. what's going on. I think Elaine's uh, was going to brush her teeth in the bathroom and she starts crying because she forgot her toothbrush. And we can see here, Joel offers Elaine his toothbrush. It's a very external manifestation of care. You know, he, we can see now Joel has that flip switch in his head. He's He wants to... Uh, make Elaine feel better. Yeah. Uh, again, I have to, I, I just want to reemphasize my point. I'm not saying that it's okay for you to always run away from your problems. I'm not <laughs> advocating for that at all. I'm yeah. just saying that in particular situations and very niche situations like this, 
sometimes it's better to guard your own interest than to just <laughs> flat out have your heart be obliterated. I'm just saying for those okay, things. I'm okay. not saying for any little thing, run away from your problems. <laughs> just want to make that clear. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how I where I fall there, but um, no, I think that's a that's <laughs> I can see that making a lot of sense. But thankfully, yeah. Thankfully, it's uh, it works out good for these guys. Yeah. Oh, before that we go yeah. into that scene with Joel and Elaine in his house, mm-hmm. I want to go to that small little exchange of dialogue where Maggie is telling Joel that he needs to stop being a manch. And then Joel oh, corrects yeah. her and says, like, I believe the word you're looking for is manch. Uh, that reminded me a lot of the West Wing in the episode The Midterms where there's an exchange between Toby and Donna. Donna, seriously. I'm perfectly serious, Toby. He's recovering from an attempted murder. He's supposed to be resting, and I don't want people going over there getting him fatushed. Fatushed. Don't bring the Yiddish unless you know what you're doing. You know what word should be Yiddish but isn't? Donna. Spatula. Thank you. Also far-fetched. <laughs> oh, wow. Very protective of that Yiddish. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like the idea of confessing to loved ones, not face to face, but through some sort of barrier in between them. So Joel and Elaine are confessing their feelings with each other about how they feel, uh, about the situation that they're in, Mm -hmm. not in the same room, but I I believe Joel... Joel's on the couch and and, uh, Elaine's in the bed, yeah. Yeah, and they're both communicating through the hallway. And I really like that. They they had that a lot in the novel Franny and Zoe. Yeah. Where the JD Salinger novel where Franny and Zoe could only have real communication on the telephone and never face to face. And it kind of reminded me of that where yeah. Joel and Elaine aren't able to explicitly talk about the ways that they feel unless they can do it without just looking into each other. It's too much to bear. Yeah. No, there's definitely, you know, um, screenwriter definitely takes into account not only the words that are said and the actions that happen in the scene, but the setting too. So in this dialogue, it's actually two separate settings, you know, they're, they're Mm -hmm. talking to each other across the rooms. Wait, Franny and Zoe, isn't there also like a large portion of that novel where one character is like in a bathtub and the other character is talking outside the bathroom? Yeah. Zoe's in the bathtub and the mother is berating him through the, I believe it's through the doors. Uh It's been a while since I've read the novel. So again, but, uh, yeah, it's, it seems like there's a little bit of a um, division between them. Yeah, obviously a huge theme throughout the novel. Got to read that again. I haven't read it in so long. Yeah, so in, in, in this scene, Elaine says, there's a part of me that's glad I fell in love with Dwight. That's the old judge that uh, she left Joel for. And then she says, but there's another part of me that wishes I never did. So this is sort of the first inkling that might confirm Joel's uh, suspicions that Elaine is maybe here to get back with him. But I don't know. I think she's just working through a lot of stress. And obviously it's a very confusing point of her life when her husband, you know, like her, she, she married him, right? Yeah. Yeah. She married him. Yeah. So it's like your husband dies. It, it is emotionally devastating. I, I, I get that. I, she never says it either throughout this episode, but we're not too sure what she's trying to get out of visiting Joel. Like, it seems like she can't even get the words out of her mouth. She says uh, when he first asks her that in the first scene uh, when she enters, she says she doesn't really know. She, I think she's just honestly, she's thrown for a loop, you know? Yeah, she's aimless right now. Yeah. Uh, and as it turns out, obviously, there's still a hole in Joel's uh, ceiling. So the bedroom is freezing cold and... Uh, Elaine, you know, joins Joel on the couch, uh, I think, right? Yeah. And they're laughing and talking about old stories. And, um, 
Maggie walks in as they're like, just as Elaine has gotten onto the couch and they're like laughing and sharing stories. And I don't even think, uh, Maggie says anything. Maybe she just says like, Oh, sorry. And then she leaves really quickly. Yeah. So it's a little twist right there that they're doing. Whereas Maggie was originally the one pushing for the relationship or like pushing for Joel to be with Elaine or at least yeah. communicate with her. Now she's realizing it's like, Oh no, what have I done? And all that. Yeah. Uh, she, classic she, sitcom point. Yeah. Yeah, she spends the rest of the episode kind of trying to push them back apart. And then, you know, directly at one point, she talks to Joel about it. So what happens next? Yeah, so we're back in the brick and Joel and Elaine are having dinner. But I think a little bit before that, I think that Maggie is having a conversation with Shelly. And she's kind of mulling over the entire situation. And suddenly her tunes change because she thinks that maybe Elaine did come to Sicily just to get back together with Joel. And she just doesn't know how to comprehend that or whether that's actually her true intentions. And to Shelly, she it's obvious to her that that is her. Yeah. That's what Shelly says. Like, that's what I would do in in this situation if I was hung up on somebody. And I don't think we ever really get, you know, I don't, I don't think we have, we've talked about this already. Um, I don't know if we can ever really figure out what Elaine's intentions really were. I think honestly, she was just confused and, and you know, it's, I don't know. Well, I guess we could touch on it when we get to the resolution, but uh, there's a little bit more with Maggie and Elaine and Joel eating a meal, as you were saying, uh, at the brick. And it's kind of embarrassing. Like Maggie is inviting Elaine to go hang out at the dump, I think, right? Yeah, for the Kodiak <laughs> family, which is, is that like a, is that a bear family? Yeah, it's like a family of bears. Uh, just because I guess people go out to the dump and watch bears uh, rifle through the trash. That's totally not good for oh. everyone involved. <laughs> like it's not good for the bears because they shouldn't be relying on humans to feed them. It's not good for the humans because there's bears in your backyard all around. Lock your, lock your trash cans, people. <laughs> yeah. I have this quote written down. I don't know if it's Joel who says it. The quote is, this is beyond the middle of nowhere. This is the end of nowhere. I think he says that to Elaine, right? I don't remember that. Because they're, I, okay, I believe it's whenever they're eating dinner uh, and mm-hmm. Adam is, uh, we'll get to this, but Adam is the chef now at, at the Brick, and uh, at least for this episode. And they're remarking at how great this meal is. And I believe Joel says something about the Five Flavors Cafe, which is, uh, he brings that up in Aurora Borealis when he meets Adam for the first time. And Adam says, oh, I I know the cook at the Five Flavors Cafe. He stole all my recipes or something like that. But yeah, they're remarking at how they could be in this quaint little, you know, Alaskan town and have this amazing meal. And he says, oh, trust me, this is the end of nowhere. Mm, Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That seems like something Joel would say. Yeah, it is in that dinner scene that that quote is said by Joel. It reminded me of uh, something he says to Bernard in the episode Aurora Borealis, Bernard is lost and Joel says, you know, I finally figured out we're somewhere between the end of the line and the middle of nowhere. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Is Sicily, Alaska like a Gilligan's Island type of situation where this is purgatory? Whoa, is that, that's one of the um, fan theories or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Gilligan's <laughs> Island represents hell or something like that. Oh man, I guess, if, yeah, I, Joel's plane <laughs> crashed. Like, you know, the first scene of the pilot is him him getting on the plane in the pilot. Yeah. You know? 
That's they 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 did that later in Lost though, isn't it? Isn't it the same thing with turning the plane and it crashes down and the, the like the finale? Oh, they're spoiler all spoiler alerts by the way. If you don't want to hear the, I mean, it's, Lost yeah, at this point, it's, like thirteen years old. Like, there's no really way. Old. There's no way it hasn't already been spoiled. Yeah, where they it turns out that like maybe they're in a purgatory like land. Is is this what Sicily Alaska is? <laughs> okay, let's wrap this up. The you know Elaine and Joel go back to have a nightcap. They are about to cheers each other and they kiss instead. And then the next morning, uh, we, it's pretty clear that they did it, uh, last night. They're kind of having, are they having coffee? They're just kind of existing at breakfast, right? I don't think they're yeah, eating Yeah, they're kind food. of having, uh, what is that called? What is that term called? Uh, coffee? Morning, no, no not that. <laughs> it's like morning glow. Oh, okay. Something like they're that. They're having a little morning glow. Is that what it's called? Is that the right terminology? <laughs> Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. That sounds, <laughs> let's go with that. I'm, I'm down okay. to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's at that moment that they realize that they're not in love with each other. Yeah. It's interesting. The sort of the metric that Joel uses, he says, Joel and Elaine, they remark at how good the sex was. And they, I think Joel says, you know, he knows they're not in love anymore. They don't love each other anymore because that's why the sex was so great or something. It's kind of a weird metric system to go off of. Yeah. Like it's an inverse relationship <laughs> between the two. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. But um, hey, maybe that's just one of the many signals that is going on with Joel and Elaine, how they've, they just figured out it's maybe because of time. I don't know. It's just over. But they're not necessarily really upset about it. I mean, they're not, uh, they feel like they've changed, you know, and it's like kind of liberating to feel that change, even when it means like you lost something, you know. I don't, I don't know if they necessarily, I mean, I guess they lost their relationship, you know, they're, they're not in love anymore, as they said, especially in the last scene with, uh, Joel and Maggie, you can see that Joel is very just, uh, introspective and kind of in a state of awe, maybe. How would you describe that? Yeah. I think that introspection is the right word to describe it. And I like that Maggie is having her own problems and yeah. coping with how maybe Joel is going to just be with Elaine instead of her. And Joel has this whole thing with Elaine and they solve their own problem within just each other. Like it took no outside scheme within Maggie for Joel to change his mind. Joel came to terms with himself and I really like that. I, I like Yeah, it wasn't that. like a trick or something. Yeah, it, it, another person didn't have to come in to show, show Joel another perspective. Him and Elaine came to it together. I would also like to point out that I think it's very interesting what you just said, where you said the, it, it wasn't like the right time for their relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because if Joel didn't have to go to Alaska, if Joel would have just stayed in Flushing, New York with Elaine, they might have just gotten married right there and Dwayne, Dwight <laughs> might not have existed at all and they would have been, you know, married together. But because of some slight happenance of coincidences down the road that sent Joel a couple of thousands of miles away, this whole fabric of his life has now changed dramatically within there. And I think it's very, just so fragile, like the state of relationships can be. Yeah. Like you have to be there at the right place, the right time in two people's lives. Yeah. To intersect, to be in a That's a good steady point. Yeah. relationship That's like that. That's a good that. point. And it's it, not necessarily, I mean, you know, some people believe in soulmates, but maybe it's also... Uh, not not just that two people are created for each other, but that there is a moment or there is a place in time that might also factor into uh, what a soulmate is or what love is. Yeah, and 
it, it just didn't occur to them right at that time. Though you could argue, though, that Joel maybe needed this change because I think they bring it up later in the episode that Joel, in fact, it's Adam that says it. So I guess maybe those two plots, maybe, maybe Adam does need oh. to exist in this episode now that I think about it. But Adam does bring up the point to Maggie that Joel is filled with insecurity yeah. and that he's going to grow up to be incredibly unhappy. He's going to be very rich, yeah. but alone. And whereas Maggie is just going to be not giving of her love. She's going to die alone with her many, many cats. Yeah. So had Joel not done this change outside force that's acting him to behave this way, perhaps Adam's vision would have came true, that incredibly sad vision. Yeah, I, I really loved, um, I think you're right. Yeah, this is a good use of Adam. He, it's Maggie's like, she's basically the last call. Like he gives her a Bloody Mary, but I think she's too drunk to drink it. Uh, reluctantly, Adam sits down next to her and, and uh, sort of gives her some advice, but it's more of insults. Oh, uh, it's <laughs> I actually really like this because he says like, oh, just because I'm behind the bar, I'm going to be the guy that gives you <laughs> yeah. advice. But then he walks in front of the bar and that's when he gives her advice. Trust me on this. Nobody around here is more screwed up than you. That's it. I'm out of here. Except Fleischman. Fleischman? What, do I have to repeat everything I say? What about Fleischman? He's insecurity incarnate. The man is riddled with fears. Are we talking about the same Fleischman? Because the Fleischman I know is arrogant, self-centered, egotistical, and a walking smirk. Haven't you ever heard of the compensatory facade? Compensatory facade? He will go back to New York, where he will drive himself ruthlessly to the top in a desperate but doomed attempt to outpace his own demons. And in the end, he will be alone, miserable, and very, very rich. Poor Fleischman. Yes. You, on the other hand, will be surrounded by cats. Elaine possesses everything that you lack. Emotional bravery, real courage. Elaine is attempting to satisfy her emotional needs while you fly from yours in the hopes that they will just disappear. Elaine embraces her fears. You deny them. He says of Maggie, he says, you never ever show your true heart and Fleischman is insecurity incarnate. And also I like what Joel says uh, in the scene with Elaine, you know, the morning after. You're so much a part of my life. You're woven into the whole fabric. I can't think about my life without thinking about you. And I, and I couldn't think about my life because I was so hurt and, and mad at you. But now I got my life back. And so, yeah, yeah he, feels, he feels like he's underwent some change. And now he's, he finally maybe feels in control of his past. Because any time he would try to think about his life, you know, he, he lost a part of, he lost Elaine, which was like such a large part of his life. Yeah, he would probably spiral into despair. I have to say that this is a great way to have closure, but I, I wonder the writer of this script was trying to, I, I, I guess, project onto this because this seems like the dream scenario for the person that <laughs> got someone, jilted yeah. to have this type of closure, which almost never happens in real life. Many times, I'm not trying to be a bummer. I'm just trying to say like many times in life, you kind of just have to cope with defeat and try to just, you know, yeah. move forward without the closure that everyone wants. What's that quote um, from Annie Hall? It's uh, at the end of Annie Hall, like after you see the scene when Diane Keaton sort of breaks up with uh, Woody Allen's character, you know, it's maybe a year later or more. 
you know, Woody Allen is at sort of a table read for this play that he's just written and you see the exact same scene, except it works out well in the end, right? It's kind Mm -hmm. of like what you're just saying, like the screenwriter just writes how they want it to come out. And then, you know, Woody Allen's character looks into the camera and he says, you know how you're always trying to get things to come out perfect in art because it's real difficult in life. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's perfect application to that. So maybe you're right. You know, like I I was saying, it does work out well for these characters in this story, but maybe, maybe it's impossible or, you know, very rare, very hard for it to work out in real life. I, I don't know. Yeah. Otherwise, I really like this plot point. Um, I think that this is the shining beacon for this episode. Yeah, uh, I'm not having, a fan. Uh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say I'm having a, lot, a, a good time talking about this episode with you. It was, I actually, when I watched it, I was, I thought it was one of the worst episodes of the season, but <laughs> maybe, maybe the jury's still out. Like, I think we have to finish all the plot lines maybe, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, me too. I'm I'm realizing while we're talking about that, I'm having all these realizations about the plot points and uh, are overanalyzing uh, yeah. the scenes. Maybe the other plot points is what we're really soured about. Like it's dragging <laughs> the average down. Yeah, I uh, I just remember thinking like the curse of the seventh episode because uh, season one was Kodiak moment. That was like probably the worst episode. Season mm-hmm. two was the season finale. I mean, it wasn't a bad episode. It just wasn't a great season finale, you know? Uh-huh. And then this is the seventh episode of the third season. And I, I mean, I don't know. I was also kind of sick when I watched the episode. So maybe that <laughs> was a factor. Let's quickly, uh, we've kind of talked about it a lot already. Maggie um, goes to Joel's office and uh, she's trying one last time to sort of wedge a divide between Joel and Elaine. And Joel is just lost in thought. And he says, oh, you know, um, Elaine has already left. But what what's interesting is, you know, maybe a more sinister character or, or um, self-serving character, if, if Maggie was more self-serving, she would be very happy to hear that Elaine left. But, you know, she kind of takes it as a blow as well. She asks Joel, she asks if he's okay. And he says, fine, uh, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. And that's the end of the scene. But they have that, that's a really important moment, I think, a very small but important exchange. Yeah, I agree. And I like the way that Rob Morrow played that scene out because he does seem very distant and like he's not very present in the moment because of what the the realizations that he's having within his head. It's very mature between the two characters and they could have played it out much worse, like you said. Like yeah. they could have had it be much more nefarious. But yeah, it's a good understanding and they get to share a little walk out of his office. Uh, they walk off down the road into the sunset. It's very, very pretty landscape. Mm-hmm. If I was trying to really, really overanalyze, and I don't think this has any really bearing on it, but I think earlier in the doctor's office scene between Rob, Mer- uh, Joel, and <laughs> Maggie, I think he has a red shirt on. It's pure red. Oh. And later at the final scene, he's wearing a pure blue shirt, and they look identical, wow. those shirts. There's no design on them or anything. It's just... Uh, standard button-up, and between the two colors, perhaps the red symbolizes that. He's, uh, I think red symbolizes passion? Sure. I'm I'm most positive in that. And then blue represents melancholy and sadness, Yeah, and maybe that's what they were trying to go for. Though, in all likelihood, the the set dressers are just like, put this on. Just just to indicate the time has changed. Even just looking at a color wheel, you know, those are like opposite colors, you know? Uh, So Mm -hmm. even without the textual significance, uh, just the colors are are polar opposites. So it definitely shows a change. Mm. Yeah, I think I want to believe that it was a deliberate choice. But 
we've kind of talked about Adam. Maybe we do that next. We kind of like, uh, what can we say? We've kind of covered it. You know, his, his, the biggest moment of his arc maybe, or his plot line is kind of the scene with Maggie though. I guess the meat, the plot of it is, uh, obviously Adam needs a hundred dollars for something. He claims it's insurance, but somehow he finds himself at the brick. He tastes the food. I love what he says. He says, this isn't a meal. This is 20 questions. <laughs> nice little exchange of dialogue right there. Yeah. And then he goes into a wager with Hauling that he'd be able to make everyone line up at the brick. To his credit, he does. Yeah. Though it seems like he got a lot of extra help. And by that extra help, I mean that like he got better ingredients. Like where are they getting all this That's great true. stuff from? Yeah. Like he's getting like pumpkin ravioli, I think is one of them. Braised chicken and wine. The, uh, what Shelly called, what, what does Shelly call it? Like Coco? Coco Vin? Oh, Coco Van. Coco Van, which I think she's trying to say, um, Coco, Coco, God, Coco we're Van. Gonna have to, Coco Van, right? She calls it something different. Than what Coco, the actual pronunciation Coco Van is. or something. Yeah, she thinks she thinks it's Coco. It's Coco Van is the oh, actual okay. pronunciation of it, um, <laughs> which is a very fancy French dish. It's chicken braised with wine, lard yeah. mushroom, and he just has all these great ingredients. And yeah, I, I just don't know where he's getting it from. The screenwriters just must believe that a, a, a chef, like a properly trained chef, can make any meal. But obviously, like the ingredients are a big factor. Yeah. Uh, he brings up a food that I never heard of before. And it's when he's talking with Bernard and Chris about their trip to Africa. Yes. And he's saying like, oh yeah, when you get there, you gotta check out this restaurant. It taught me everything I know about manioc. Yes. And I had no idea what manioc was and I had to look it up. And it turns out that manioc is cassava, which is kind of like the tropical potato. It's starchy, it's inevitable and raw, yeah. and it's bland in flavor. You probably recognize it as yucca. Like that's how you yes. probably heard of it, at least in the South, because it's uh, it's called yucca, I guess, in Latin America. Um, yeah, I actually didn't know what manioc was either. And I, I looked at it, I was like, oh yeah, I, I've had that before. <laughs> but it's funny that he called it that. Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's more of a culinary uh, term. Maybe it's uh, the term for that region, because they were saying um, Chris is going to Africa. So yeah, we kind of, we kind of talked about it. Um, you know, the, the wager was he would have people lining up at the door and it happens. And we almost get a glimpse of what the brick would be like with our, you know, what Northern exposure would be like with Adam on every episode because Holling offers Adam a job, but now he just wanted a hundred dollars. That's all. Yeah. I actually think that that would have been a great idea to have Adam be part of the cast, the core cast members. I think that he brings yeah. a unique character that none of the other characters have traits of, and I would have been delighted had they done that, though I imagine that he's not. No, yeah, but he'll, he's a recurring character for sure, but a guest star always. Um, but yeah, I, you know, who knows what it would have been like. I've seen the series now. I can say I like it. I like it without Adam on every episode. It's good to have him, you know, just every once in a while, kind of sprinkled in, you know? Mm. I do have to say that it's nice that Adam worked for his money. Like he got the hundred dollars that he needed, but only because he put in the time and effort rather than yeah. having it just be handed yeah, it to yeah. him. I, I don't know what the larger lesson from that is. Yeah. yeah. Like obviously you should be working for your money. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows that, but it was just really nice that uh, it tied back into that and it wasn't super obvious to me that it was going to end that way. Yeah. Uh, and so apart from just like the different dishes and arguments that Adam has with hauling. That's basically his plot line, you know, and the, the whole Maggie uh, counseling that he does. But mm -hmm. 
Let's roll it back to the beginning of the episode. As, in fact, as Joel is walking into town, we, we were describing that beautiful amalgamation of scenery and music and directing. As, as Joel is walking into town, a car drives up and Bernard is back. This is Chris's brother from season one. Yes. Brother from another... No, same no, mother. Same mother. Same wait, mother. That expression no, same, doesn't no, hold. Wait, wait, wait. Different mother, same father, right? They share a father. So brother they from another mother. mother. It is brother from another mother. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Never mind. The expression holds. Um, yeah, so it's Bernard, and he's coming in, and it's uh, a coincidence because Chris, like we said earlier, was having these weird dreams of uh, African, African dancers and, and music. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I love what he says. Dreams are postcards from the subconscious. Uh, he also quotes Bertrand Russell. I do not believe that I am now dreaming, but I cannot prove that I am not. And uh, this is all happening as Bernard is pulling out of his car, you know, coming out of his car. And, you know, they meet and they uh, agree to go for a meal at the Brit. Yeah. And it turns out that Bernard's true uh, reason for coming to Sicily is to disclose the fact that their father has passed away. Though the way that Chris takes the news is kind of odd. Like I thought he would have been a little bit more sadder, but... Yes, you know, not an ounce of uh I think he not an ounce of it there. I think uh what we learn again from this episode is that uh Chris's father and Bernard's father, while being the same man physically, Chris says they're spiritually completely different. Chris says his father was never there. So it's likely that Chris never really knew his dad. His dad was uh we know that he was a truck driver, probably not at home a lot. They never really had a great um relationship or connection. Whereas, um, from my understanding, Chris was saying that Bernard's father, again, the same man, was at home all the time or just maybe more present. Yeah, he was being a quote-unquote good father. He was providing him comfort, quality time, all the things that Bernard was saying. Yeah, that really reminded me of a plot point that happened in the other CBS television series, uh, How I Met Your Mother, which isn't a particularly very deep sitcom, quote-unquote deep, but there is a plot line where it involves Barney meeting his real father, played by wow. Don Lithgow, fantastic actor. And Barney had always imagined his father to be this rock star. And in his mind, he was. Like when he was a child, John Lithgow's character was very unresponsible. He was managing uh, multiple bands, being on the road, being, uh, you know, just drinking all the time, being amazing in Barney's eyes. But then when he meets him finally as an adult, he's really calmed down. He's a responsible uh, driver's ed teacher. And when Barney goes to have dinner with him, with his dad, he is kind of enraged at the end of the dinner with them. And John Lithgow's character, the dad, he asked him, he's like, why are you being so mad? And he was like, if I'm being such an ordinary dad, why, why does that enrage you so much? And Barney says, like, if you were going to be an ordinary dad, why couldn't you have been that for me then? If you were just going to be lame, like, yeah. why did you leave in the first place? And I thought that was like one of the few moments in that show. Where I was like, that's really clever. Like, that's a great point to make. And I would imagine that Chris would have had that same rage being yeah. like, if you were going to be this ordinary father, why couldn't you have been that for me? Yeah, that's a, no, that's really, I, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because that's a really good, uh, you know, you might expect Barney just to be upset because his expectations aren't met. Like he's expecting a rock star, but no, it's, it's a more really sort of lost nostalgia. You know, it, it's a deeper hurt, you know? And it's a great distinction that's made there in that sort of reveal in that episode. That's a good point. And why doesn't Chris feel this way? My only guess is he seems uh, just a more stoic person in general. And so 
maybe he uh, sort of got over the fact that his father wasn't around years ago. You know, maybe he's been, um, he's kind of lived his life without really thought about, I don't think he really considers his father past sort of the inheritance of alcoholism and uh, wildness that he gets from his father's side. I don't think he's hurt. I mean, he's obviously not hurt very much by this news. Yeah, those are great points that you're bringing up. And I guess to continue forward, we find out that he left a substantial inheritance for his son, Bernard. And Bernard feeling that the right thing to do would be to split the inheritance with his other son, his brother. Yeah, well, so apparently their father... Actually, what's his name? Because they mentioned him in the in uh, Jules and Joel. Abe Stevens. Yes. Okay. So it is Abe Stevens. Uh, he left the inheritance to both of his sons. However, Bernard's mom saw that in the will and she like crossed out the S. Um, I don't think that's actually how wills work. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but this is, again, this is what the writers have uh, written, maybe to streamline it for us. But... $36,000, right? That's how much money. 6000 comes from the interest. Yes. So 30000 and then Bernard is giving 6000 for interest. Chris obviously does not want to accept it. He, you know, for the reasons I stated earlier, you know, physically Abe Stevens is one man, but spiritually two different people. Chris doesn't feel like he deserves any of it. His father wasn't really part of his life. But what happens? What sort of kickstarts this. Yeah, they start talking about dreams and Bernard reveals that he hasn't had any really vivid or memorable ones in a long time. And Chris is the opposite. He's been having them. And Chris is kind of horrified to learn that Bernard has been experiencing this. Yeah. What does Bernard say? He says, like you said, he doesn't really have, he has pretty mundane dreams, dreams like uh, mailing a letter, mowing a lawn. He feels like the rainforest of his psyche has been sprayed with defoliant. I really liked that uh, quote. Yeah, nice little metaphor. And, oh wait, actually, sorry to kind of derail us a little bit, but Chris mentions that uh, he finds that when he has an upset stomach, if he eats a lot of spicy food before going to bed, that his dreams are more intense. Do you have any uh, dream hacks, Charles? Uh, I, okay, yes in a way. So you know how sometimes you get woken up by an alarm, let's say like, you set an alarm for 7 a.m. You have to be at a place at 8. So, you know, you can squeeze in maybe five more minutes of sleep. And you can put snooze. it on snooze. Yeah. Yeah. The, between the time of whenever I woke up initially and the snooze timer, I will have vivid dreams between there. Oh. Yeah. That snooze alarm moment, that my, my dreams are the strongest. So, right keep there. your dream Without journal fail. handy for that, yes. for that specific period of time. And I think that has some scientific basis because okay. I believe that dreams are the strongest or most memorable whenever you're quote unquote awake, like you're at the height of REM sleep. So maybe it's because I just woke up and I'm going back to sleep. So that's why the dreams are the most strongest. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I have no idea what I'm saying about this type of stuff, but I do know that it tends to happen right there. But what about you? Someone told me um, if you drink apple juice before bed because there's some vitamin, uh, I, I, again, I haven't read any scientific papers on this. And in fact, I don't think it's worked for me in the past, but uh, it's just what I heard. That's the, that's the lowdown. Mm. Are you a fan of having dreams? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I actually really like nightmares just because, I mean, I hate it when it's happening, but they're super memorable. You know, I tend to forget my dreams. Usually can remember them when I wake and sometimes throughout the day, depending on the dream. But after a day, you know, if I didn't write it down, it's probably forgotten. 
Really? Unless it's a nightmare uh, or something really <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I'm not a fan of either one. Uh, nightmares for the obvious reason that it's scary to have them. Uh, and <laughs> I'm not a fan of having dreams either because sometimes this is the way I weigh it out on my okay. head. Okay, so either something, I'm having a great time in this dream and then I wake up and it's not real. So <laughs> real it's like, why sucks. did I even, why did I have to taste this in the first place? I'm never going to have it again. This is I terrible. I know the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. Man. I've had like so, really intense conversations with people and then wake up and be like, oh, I guess that never happened. <laughs> I can't really, can't really go to that person and be like, hey, I talked to you about this, but it doesn't work like that. But yeah, so I kept kind of, we're circling around this. They do go to bed and, uh, this time in the dream, Bernard is there, right? And this time, Chris is dancing now, where before he was just kind of curious walking around. Chris is dancing wholeheartedly, and Bernard is watching. He's, it kind of seems like he's trying to figure it out, you know? He's trying to yeah, he, learn the steps, maybe? Yeah, he's just an observer rather than an actor of it. And uh, when the dream ends, Chris wakes up with a solution. He says, I have to go to Africa. Like, he knows this in his heart, in his mind. And he even speaks some uh, Swahili. He says Kesho, which is uh, Swahili for tomorrow. But he doesn't know that. Yeah, he doesn't even know what he just said. It's crazy. Yeah. And then he uh, then he pulls like the most no-no thing of 2019. <laughs> he says that he is a person of color. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so first off, they go on air and he's announcing his departure from Sicily. He's got to go to Africa. He's got cornrows. He's got like the whole African garb. Yeah, it and looks so like he just first, came back from first, a cruise to Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> so that that is already like sort of cultural appropriation there, but he does he does he does say that he declares himself to be a person of color. And Bernard is sitting right next to him, just smiling. <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> it is the weirdest. Like, that is not... Uh, I, wonder it, what, I wonder what the actor Bernard was feeling on set or if he's just like this is some goofy white people stuff <laughs> Bernard is just sitting there smiling it's so weird and we would see this later in 2016 <laughs> with Get Out <laughs> oh yeah that was a yeah, 2016 I, film? wow I thought that was 2017 was it 2017? I don't know I kind of have to look it up now since we're talking about it. Oh, you're right. It is 2017. You're right. I've been doing some research on uh, films of 2017, but uh, yeah, lots of great movies. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're seeing that there's an exchange that's happening here, whereas like Chris is taking Bernard's dreams and Bernard took Chris's father. Right. Oh, yeah. Wait. So before we run into that, because that is a good, um, that is the good next little cog in the uh, in the plot i just wanted to say if there's any defense for what chris is doing uh his quote is my brother's arrival has been an epiphany for me a karmic tripwire igniting a deeper awareness of my connection to the planet so what chris is trying to do by <laughs> declaring himself a person of color he's trying to connect with his family his father his brother the planet he's not trying to <laughs> i guess i don't know I think he's he's trying to be one with everything, you know, but but it can be seen uh, not in a great light, I guess. Y- yeah. At the very least, this episode, uh, a lot of times we say like, oh, this episode wouldn't do very well in today's climate. And a lot of the times, in fact, all the times have been due to 
uh, sex-related things. Yeah. At least this time, it's it was not due to sex-related things. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's it's an outlier, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it's an outlier in that. Um, but you're right. Sorry, right, right lane, left brain. Let's get back to what you were saying, sort of this exchange. Yeah, yeah. So we're seeing that we're having an intersection between two ideas where Chris is taking something from Bernard, Bernard is taking something from Chris, uh, and they're trying to come to terms with that. We're trying to say, like, oh, how can we exchange this? How can this be done properly? And then we get to the next dream sequence the yeah. final one where it's i believe chris is once again dancing yeah and he goes to somebody that's just sitting on the throne like uh-huh. he belongs there with like a big mask just on, mm-hmm. yeah. and he reveals off the mask and it's bernard yeah and i think in the dream bernard says uh you've been having my dreams like that's the weird uh, it's a weird uh unexplained phenomenon but because uh, <laughs> normally they've i think in the past they've shared dreams they've uh been in the same dream together, obviously. And this time it's just some weird thing where, uh, yeah, I think it's expertly put, you know, like Bernard gets the father, uh, Chris gets the dreams. So yeah, that's when Chris has the realization that this isn't his destiny to fulfill. Like he was all gung-ho about going to Africa. He thought it was a person of color. He (laughs) was going to fulfill this Dream. What's another word yeah. for dream? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> What's another um, word for dream? It's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he realizes like, oh, it's not my dream. It's Bernard's dream. And Bernard needs to go fulfill this and not me. Yeah. Chris has his hair back like like normal, like before. Uh, like you said, man's got to mm-hmm. fulfill his own destiny, not someone else's. Yeah. Obviously, Chris is a little bummed that he's not going to get to go to Africa. But, you know, he didn't want the money in the first place. And he sees, he obviously cares for his brother. He sees that uh, that that is important, at least for some weird dream, dream reasoning. You know, it's just it's got to be this way. So, yeah, this is where I find fault with the episode and what really sounds it for me. And okay. this is one particular thing. Why is it that Bernard's quote unquote destiny is to go to Africa? Like from all the appearances that we've seen of Bernard, he has no indication that he wants to go there. So why is it that that's the thing that he wants to go to? And they try to explain it by saying, like, that's the motherland. Like, that's the homeland. Uh-huh. He's trying to go back to his roots. Are you saying, like, um, it's is it only because Bernard is black that they yeah. want to send him to Africa? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a tokenization maybe, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you, you have a whole many, many ideas of this arguing being like, no, like he really is from Africa. Like it was slavery that brought him into the America. Well, no, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. Have to, you have to be aware that like there's this whole cultural um, part of his heritage that has been wiped out by white people, you know? So it, it's a, it's stronger, I guess, a need for him to go maybe perhaps for that reason. But uh, for, for all of that um, color of skin aside, you know, similar, the same reasons that maybe Chris was wanting to go to Africa was to connect with uh, his family, his past, and the planet, you know? So it doesn't have to necessarily be, but I kind of see what you're saying. Like, maybe it's a little tokenization. It it doesn't have to be Africa, though. If he wanted to connect to something in his past, they could have used literally anything else to indicate that. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I am a fan of characters speaking to their identity. Like, whenever there are characters who are gay and they're speaking about how it feels to be gay... I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I'm pro to that. I know many, many people nowadays would be like, I don't like how uh, gay characters mm. have to bring up their sexuality. Why can't they just like, you know, act their character out normally? Yeah, yeah, I'm like, well, that's a huge part of their identity is having uh, to be gay. So 
I, see what I you're feel saying. that like, it's, it's right for them to speak about being gay and the problems that they have. Uh, whereas, you know, many people have differing thoughts on that. But in this particular case for Bernard, this was not a part of his identity, though. I, I feel I don't feel like his part of identity was like, I've always wanted to go back to Africa. I've always wanted to see uh, how my roots were. And that's where my problem. I think, I think it is a little more startling as well, because he's like the only black character on the show. So, you know, again, like it's like the only black character, the Africa episode roots, you know, it's, you know, why can't he do something else? That's not really, uh, like hinging on the color of his skin, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so, like, yeah. <laughs> this is what, like, I, I think like recently in the comic book world of Marvel, I think they're coming out with like a new Asian superhero and this Asian superhero is dealing with like Kung Fu and stuff. I'm like, why, why, why couldn't he just be like Iron Man or something? Why, why couldn't he, why did he have to do, I know yeah, you can argue yeah. and be like, well, that's where like all the, it comes from there. Like, that's why it has to be there. Like, I get that, but why? Yeah, they don't have to, been just because else, he's like an Asian guy, he doesn't have to like speak for his, his he's not, because yeah. he he's the one Asian guy. It's like, oh, we, uh, can you tell us more about your culture? He's like, no, I just want to be uh, Iron Man, you know? Yeah, like I'm an American first. Like, what, I don't, <laughs> what the heck? Uh, uh, I th- mean, th- and that's, whatever. That's where I find fault with the episode. I, the, I know I'm going at this at like different frictions. This could be something that many people have very heated uh, passions for or like uh, differing views and perspectives. But that's honestly how I'm coming at this episode and why I'm disliking it so much is because of this particular plot point. Though I have to get credit that, again, this was in the early <laughs> 1990s. Like it's, this it is, is weird. just the no, way yeah. it was. This is the ones, the kind of the sore thumb of the episode for sure. This plot line is the weirdest. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I don't want to keep hammering on it. To, yeah, on this particular thing, I understand the circumstances, and you know what? Even in 2019, I might even still be wrong with the views that I'm having right now. Just <laughs> the way I'm having my opinions. Yeah, we're not right about anything on this podcast. Again, <laughs> I say this all the time. We're always wrong. Like this is just what we're thinking of at the moment. So please take it with a grain of salt. That covers all the plot lines, but I did want to circle back to the Joel and Elaine plot line because I forgot to bring this up. This is a question that I have for you. So mm-hmm. at, at sort of the climax, Joel realizes that uh, he says, now I got my life back. Um, what does Elaine get from this? You know, she was bereaved and, uh, you know, she needed like a friend, but, uh, in the end, well, what happens to Elaine after this? Huh? That's a really good point. I, I guess we don't get to see her leave. You know, we just see Joel in some ways, I guess she also gets to closure. I don't know if she needed it as much as Joel, but she did need someone to help guide her through the grief. Yeah. And Joel was that person. So I guess what she gets out of this trip is some direction in the future and how to process the death of her husband. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, honestly, I think that's uh, that's all we're shown, so yeah. Yeah, though you're right. It mostly seems to be that most of the uh, emotional growth is on Joel. Gifted to Joel, for sure. Again, we don't see Elaine leave, so we don't really know um, maybe how she grew, but um, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, something, to, something to make sure that we touched on. Well, what did you think then? Like, I think I would agree. Me. I think I would agree with that. I was just saying, like, uh, I was just, I was posing the question more, to show that uh, the episode is really focused on Joel, um, but not really too focused on uh, Elaine's um, outcome, you know? Mm, okay. Because we don't really see her ending. She leaves off screen, you know? But right, it's, right. A, it's a really effective ending, I think, uh, to, to have it in that way when Maggie comes into Joel's office. But um, yeah, is now a good time to toss to our guest? 
Yeah, I think now's a perfect time to segue into that. Uh, so where are we? Okay, so our guests for this episode are John, Paul, and Lee. Brothers, that's right. There's another Lee in the universe. I played a lot of music with John Paul in high school. In fact, we were in a band together with uh, Mason, who was our, uh, our co-host, Charles, on season two, episode one. We all three were in a band together. And uh, also I play music with John Paul and Lee, um, his older brother, today. Uh, they're both incredibly skilled guitarists. And it's really cool to see them like sort of like trade solos, you know, electric guitar, you know, it's a real rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, um, I don't know how much um, them being brothers will affect their uh, an analysis of this episode, but <laughs> uh, I guess let's see what happens. Yeah, let's toss it to them. You played the soundtrack in the eighth grade dance. I think so. That's pretty good. It was, well, it was a middle school dance, which we were in eighth grade. Okay. For some reason, it, 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 and it won all kinds of awards, the song. So it just be, kind of came a, a popularity thing. I don't know why we played it other than it was on the radio at the time. and <laughs> We were in eighth grade. Anyway, Northern Exposure. So this is John Paul Zimmerman. He's my older brother, Lee. Oh, we didn't know we were recording. (laughs) My wife and baby are in the background here. You might hear them, but um, we're here to talk about our experience watching Season 3, Episode 7 of Northern Exposure. Lee or Charles, feel free to edit out whatever you'd like to. No, wait, which Lee? Uh, Lee. Lee. But um, <clears throat> one point we'd like to jump right into, we know y'all like to uh, get somebody who is particularly unfamiliar with Northern Exposure to watch this. Lee and I both have some exposure to Northern Exposure. Uh, both me and my wife have watched the first season as lent to us by Mason, who I believe y'all had co-host earlier in season two. Uh, ironically, I'm the guy who still has his DVDs and won't watch them nor give them back. So I'll uh, fall on that sword. Uh, but I'm somewhat familiar with the plot line of uh, Northern Exposure, though I haven't delved so much into the seasons. Lee and I, Lee Zimmerman, my brother, both have the connection, however, of our parents being particularly huge fans of Northern Exposure. Not so much today, but back when it was airing, it was definitely their favorite show. As my mom told me just a couple days ago, they they loved it so much, they bought the soundtrack to it. Apparently, that's something that you did back in the early 90s. Back then, I was too young to remember anything, but Lee here, who's 10 years older than me, vividly remembers sitting down and watching Northern Exposure with mom and dad. So, um, I guess... With our discussion on what we think about this episode and what we think about Northern Exposure, I'll turn the, that, to the mic over to Lee the, here to uh, give his two cents to so start us off. Unbeknownst to me, I believe you captured the whole story about DJing the eighth grade dance and yes. the, the theme song. Watching the episode last night and just now, uh, the first thing that jumped back in my head was that theme song with the uh, what appears to sound like the synthesized harmonica. I do remember the characters, uh, most specifically John Corbett, and uh, just talking with John Paul, the two other, well, three other uh, performances that he had done that that came to mind were, not that I was a huge Sex in the City fan, but uh, he had a role in there, and uh, my big fat Greek wedding, and and then there was a serendipity with John Cusack opposite of Kate Beckinsale, where where John Corbett played uh, Kate Beckinsale's significant other, who was 
very strangely and uh, weirdly the same type of character he plays in Northern Exposure. But uh, I, I quickly remember John Corbett is one of the few people from Northern Exposure when I was younger watching it with mom and dad on its uh, weekly airtime or whatever it was. So uh, a couple of uh, initial thoughts that I had. Obviously, uh, if you didn't notice, there's two people reporting here, which I understand that might be somewhat of an anomaly on this podcast. What Lee told us is because this show focuses on two brothers, he wanted to have two brothers recording. Not knowing anything about this episode, because neither of us seen, had seen it, we watched it. Watched it individually, then we came together and watched it together. You know, obviously, the, the humor behind the brotherhood in this TV show is that one brother is white and one brother is black. That immediately reminded me of back when I was in college, say six or seven years ago, I was really into How I Met Your Mother, as many people were. And um, if you've watched that show, you have Barney, who is the womanizer character, is a white kind of player sort of person. And there's one episode where they say that his brother's coming into town and they, you know, they're getting ready for his brother's arrival and they tell the character Robin, yeah, Barney's brother is coming into town. He's great. He's such a fun guy. Just so you're not surprised by anything, he is gay. And she's like, okay, that's cool. That's fine. And there's a knock at the door. It's his brother. They open it and his brother's played by Wayne Brady. So you get this immediate hilarious moment where it's, oh, it's his brother, but his brother's black. Well, why is that funny? It's because it's something you can't avoid you know it's something that just doesn't go together two brothers are supposed to be just alike at least on the the screen but whenever they look completely different from each other just because of their skin color it's clearly not um normal right so it uh, opens up a whole avenue of humor that you can explore how I met your mother kind of took that subplot in a pretty uh, dull way but but obviously that's the the focus of this episode and it, it was ironic that uh sean patrick harris who is gay his brother is gay while he's a womanizer <laughs> in how much sure <laughs> but that was you know really entertaining lee you mentioned your thoughts in the opening scene which was particularly funny why don't you talk about that yeah i, I uh again i hadn't seen northern exposure in a long time, more than two decades. It was the first time to watch it. I recognize the opening theme, but uh, of course, prior to that, the opening scene of this episode starts out with kind of an African influence uh, music and chant. And <laughs> I'm watching it and uh, John Corbett gets out of bed, walks outside, and there are all these um, African people engaged in a very uh, authentic cultural African dance. And I was watching it really late at night and I said, man, I thought this show was better than that. Clearly, uh, these are not the indigenous natives of Alaska. <laughs> so I was really confused what was going on and quickly realized it was a dream. And I kind of laughed myself. And then they played the, the theme song, which I was familiar with, but never recognized the percussion in it. It sounded oh, yeah. exactly like the African-influenced uh, music that was played in the dream. And then the fretless bass playing along... Uh, with the African percussion like reminded me Grace of something Lane, huh? right out of Paul Simon's Graceland. Yeah, so, that, that stood out to me, too. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember if there was music playing during the episode. 
or not, but the the thought of Graceland and, and pretty much every song and the mix of the cultural sounds really tie right into this episode or this the TV show. Honestly, the the theme song and the mix of everything. But that's a that's a cool observation. So you know some of the themes that I picked up on in this episode. You know you have this idea of juxtaposition of people who are like forced to experience another person who's either obviously different from them or they just want to brush out of their lives, if you will. I don't know. I think, you know, something, uh, the phrase came to mind that the old phrase that says, you are the sum of all the people you've experienced your life with. And I feel like that's the theme here. You know, you have the two stories, is uh, Chris and Bernard uh, rekindling their brotherhood and trying to interpret this this dream. And then you have Joel and Elaine, who ex-lovers, who come back together and try to rekindle things and realize it's definitely not meant to be. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, no one can figure anything out for themselves. They're stuck to remembering the people that they have lived their lives with. Uh, Joel is forced to spend the evening with his ex-fiance who left him for an old man. And out of this, he's he realizes how important she really is in his life and how he can't just forget her. And Chris and Bernard realize that the dream that Chris has been having has been Bernard's dream. And that Bernard, who is so lost on what seems to be a quest, finally realizes that he needs to pick up his bags and go to Africa to experience whatever. On his uh, true quest. Yeah, on his true quest. That, well, that's the I'm trying to compare the two stories there, and that's what I, I feel. I think it's very applicable to this day and age because um, you know people my generation, maybe even younger, are faced with with the internet. You know, so much information that people are almost encouraged to fabricate their own identity instead of like look at the people they were raised with, look at their friends and their family for their identity. Don't try to go find your identity and pick and choose who you want to be. You are the sum of the people who you were put on this life here. To build on John Paul's analysis, one other thing we were talking about, and one thing that I remembered growing up watching this is it takes place in this um, this fictitious town. What's the name of the town? Uh, I want to say Celery, Alaska. But that's not right. That's <laughs> like Sicily. Sicily. Yeah. <laughs> Just watching this first episode, and I don't know if it's applicable to all of the other episodes and seasons. But it takes place in this remote area that's completely void of influence of the rest of Alaska and really the rest of the United States at the time, uh, both politically and socially. It's an atypical place. It's an eccentric place that's not uh, representative of trends, political or social, of the times, as well as the problems and social trends. And so it, you have this uh, interaction, this cultural melting pot of personalities it presents the uh, Alan Arkin's character where he appears to be his own Adam, Adam, Adam Arkin. I'm sorry. Adam Arkin, who plays the character Adam. He appears to be his homeless guy. I don't know his role in uh, any of the other episodes or the, the series, but uh, my, my first, uh, when I saw him walking in the office, I just thought it was some homeless, annoying guy. And then as the, the story unfolds, he appears to be this very worldly and educated person. Yeah, he's extremely cultured. And I think that applies to a lot of the characters that face value stereotype doesn't apply. Yeah, Joel says at one point he's in uh, something like in prison in Alaska. He's uh, 
he says something along those lines, which I, I'm guessing that's the the theme to the entire the series is that you know Joel's so out of place because he's in Podunk, Alaska. But the ironic thing, and they touch on this, Adam touches on this Adam, in the Adam. bar scene where uh, Maggie's at the bar and he's berating her. You know, he's saying like Joel's a sorry excuse. He's you know so confused. You know, he has all these issues. It's because he feels like he's so above this life. But ironically, every one of these characters is more cultured and successful than he, the MD. It's a very unique series and a very unique episode, but not to parallel it with anything else. But I was telling John Paul, it reminded me, the one cliche that can be applied, it kind of reminded me of the movie Doc Hollywood. For some reason, we had a brain fart and couldn't remember the actor of that. It was Michael J. Fox, (laughs) (laughs) where he's a, a hotshot doctor from the big city. I believe it was New York, and he gets stuck in some podunk town, and he's very resentful of the the occasion and wants to get out, but finds that uh, you know he learns so much around everyone else and ends up wanting to stay. Of course, I don't know. I can't remember what, what happens to Fleischman at the end of the series. But, um, yeah, don't ruin it. I've already had enough spoiled by this podcast. All right. All right. Well, I think uh, we're 15 minutes into it. I don't know if this our, is uh, that's, <laughs> that's too long or what. Well, hopefully um, – uh, Makes exception to the Zimmerman brothers. All right. Thank you all. Have a have a good podcast. All right. That was Lee and John Paul's extended guest analysis of the episode. And I guess there's two of them, so it would have to be double the length of an ordinary one. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to cut anything out of it because it was almost, it was so good the way they were like kind of riffing off each other. I was almost listening to a new podcast, just listening to their <laughs> analysis. is amazing. Yeah, I think they would actually make a really great podcast. Though you, you were the one that edited this, right? Yeah, oh, I I just cut out uh, pauses and things like that to to kind of keep the pace up. Oh, okay. I'm assuming that you also edited and added in the bleeps, right? Oh, yes. Those are, um, yeah, I'm just protecting my, uh, you know, keeping my anonymity. I just didn't want to have my last name floating around or attached to this podcast, but I guess it's a little <laughs> weird because John Paul and, and Lee introduced themselves with, with their last name. <laughs> I think uh, another, you, I think Matt, our, our, our guest Matt also does that. He just let, let in with uh, his last name and I, I was trying to edit out, you know, to, to preserve their anonymity, but uh, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I assume they weren't dropping F-bombs uh, <laughs> that much. Yeah, just swearing my name. I've never actually heard his older brother speak, and I hadn't heard John Paul in a while. Like, I remember meeting him uh, years ago, and uh-huh. I forgot that they had such a uh, typical Southern accent. Uh, I would say it's kind of developed just from just from living in the South. You know, it kind of, it kind of accentuates that accent. I noticed uh, whenever I, I play in this... Um, alternative country like rock band with John Paul and some others. And just, you know, as a joke, when you're singing, you kind of inflect a little more twang in your voice. And just hearing that, you know, just hanging out with those guys, it it starts to come out with me as well, (laughs) that enhanced accent. Yeah. Uh, Do you have this thing where you'll mimic the accent of the person speaking to you? Definitely. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, isn't that like a psychological human uh, thing? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I remember once uh, some people from Britain, like they were proper English people, like came to visit um, the town. And 
I started almost dipping into an English <laughs> accent as well. But the way they were Fake. speaking, it almost souned like it almost sounded like stereotypically offensive. Like I thought they oh. were just putting on a bit. You were uh, like, they were you were so English. Of offending them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought they them. were doing something like that because oh, they were wow. so English. Like it was <laughs> such an English accent. I was like, what is going on here? Uh, I saw a headline um, mm-hmm. talking about the workers in Ant- Antarctica. You know how it's such a remote location that really the only people, the only humans that exist there are, are scientists or people studying uh, the area. And the headline was claiming that there's an accent that's starting to develop that's uh, unique to just this handful of people that oh, no way. that live and work down there. It's fascinating. Oh, that's amazing. On a related note, uh, a couple of years ago, did you know that some scientist in Antarctica Tinder matched with another scientist in Antarctica? <laughs> And did it work out? Did the relationship? Uh, it did not. They went on like one date. And it was not. <laughs> There's literally it like one out. other, you know. Yeah, you must have small. had to like change the, um, what is it? Like the radius thing yeah. on that app? I've never used it before. Like, yeah, it must have changed it to like 1,000 mile <laughs> radius. <laughs> okay, but yeah. yeah, we should get into the content of what yeah. they're saying rather than just the <laughs> quality of their voices. <laughs> what's, uh, okay, so what's first here? I was actually... Um, surprised to learn that the theme song was so popular it got radio play and obviously they played it at the their school dance they, it was part of the dj rotation that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah i thought that was hilarious can you imagine asking that now like you just <laughs> went up to like the, the dj at your school dance i was like hey do you have like the cheers theme song can you put that up on the queue <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah well i don't yeah you know school dances uh I, re- I remember hearing when, when school dances used to have like live bands, you know, like a la Back to the Future. I mean, but, but even more contemporary, like in the 80s, maybe even in the early 90s. But I feel like a lot of uh, school dances uh, at this point are, are DJed. Yeah, I think it's just cheaper. I, I guess is what I'm assuming. Yeah, uh, I don't know. You know what I'm really surprised about is the number of guest analysts, parents who are big fans of the show. Yeah, I mean, apparently this was... Uh, as I was saying, it was an incredibly popular show at the time. It just sort of, I feel like it's sort of uh, lost the limelight because it hasn't been accessible. You know, who has a VCR and the DVDs as well? Like there's even the fans uh, of the show dislike the DVDs because of their uh, replacement music that is... um, use so often i think that's a reason why old shows that have been retired or like uh they've been canceled or they've ended can resurge in popularity is due to their availability to the future generation so for example or something yeah like the office was Mm -hmm. already a uh, relatively popular show when it was airing um i would say very popular but then it kept up its relevancy through the future because it was always on netflix so the next generation of kids kept watching it like the period at which it would start to um, sink or like lose viewership is also around the same time that Netflix streaming uh, was a thing or, you know, like streaming sites were available. So it never really, I guess, didn't suffer too much or maybe it had a great resurgence because of the streaming platforms. Yeah. So if Northern Exposure would have just made their media much more accessible. Fingers crossed, man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Hopefully one day. I honestly don't know what's holding back. I don't know. Also on the topic of the theme song, John Paul mentions that their parents had the soundtrack. And I was just curious. I think I've looked at it before, but I was uh, looking at it again today just to see what uh, songs are on the soundtrack. Obviously, the theme song, 
There's a Leonard Skinner song, Give Me Three Steps. There, there's a lot of music on here that we probably have, have not heard because of, uh, again, because of the DVDs replacing the music. Uh, but one of the songs that is featured on this disc is um, that Don Quixote song that I was uh, talking about. It's in that episode of uh, Jules and Joel. Whenever Jules is uh, being very shysty and in the uh, or oh, actually Joel yeah. is acting acting as Jules, and they're playing just really bad sort of house music. Um, the DVDs uh, obviously they did take that and and they replaced that song, but both the replacement and the original song, the the Don Quixote song, I kind of despise. I didn't really like it all. <laughs> Oh, how? made it onto the disc. <laughs> uh, on the uh, soundtrack of it, did they have like the original music of Northern Exposure on there? Yeah, there's uh, there is again the theme song by David Schwartz. Mm-hmm. There is a song called Alaskan Nights, and then there's a medley of songs. Uh, the last track on this disc is a medley of songs by David Schwartz. The titles are A Funeral in My Brain, Woody the Indian, and The Telecutans. You know, as we know from uh, the body in question, there's also another release called "More Music from Northern Exposure." You know, something like that. Uh, but I'm I'm just looking at the original release. I guess this is the original release. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I was wondering if they had uh, what we call Maggie's theme. I was wondering yeah. if that was on there. What the I'm, proper name for it would be? As I I think I looked this up before. Maybe give me a second, and I'll try to figure out what it's called. So actually, I can't find, I thought I had seen a title for this song online somewhere, but I can't find it. I guess we'll just call it Maggie's Theme. And if anyone knows the name of this little bit of score, I'm almost certain it's probably by David Schwartz, right? I mean, it seems like original music for the show. Yeah, I'll definitely have to say that it's got to be specifically composed for this television show. Well, um, I, I can't imagine it being an original song from another person. If you if you know the name of the song or any more information about it, please write in to Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, we're really scratching our heads with this one. Yep. Well, just to get back to the theme song, um, Lee, I think, is the first person to bring up that this harmonica sort of melody, it, it seems like a synthesized harmonica sound. And yeah, it's a very specific sound, you know, like when I hear it, I'm like, yeah, that's a harmonica, but it does sound a little strange. Uh, I can't tell if it's actually is synthesized or, or not. I'm not a good judge for that, but I trust Lee's opinion. He's a pretty knowledgeable musician as far as tone and sound goes. Yeah, I have no earthly idea. <laughs> like, I'm, uh, Yeah, I can't tell the difference. If you play like a fake violin, like... <laughs> what what is it called? Is it really all just called synthesize? Like yeah. if you compose a whole score using it? Yeah, I can never tell what <laughs> I'm doing there. I, I guess vibrato would make the difference because I don't think you can mimic that. But yeah, uh, good good catch by Lee all right there. I got to say that I really like the phrase that they use that I think epitomizes their whole uh, analysis is you are the sum of all the people you've met. Yeah, John Paul brings that up as sort of his uh, connecting uh guiding principle for, for what's going on in the, the whole theme of the episode. Yeah, it's a theme that we never really explored uh, between Chris and Bernard because presumably we're digging into the past between the two brothers, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the dreams where you're kind of seeing perhaps maybe what your old roots were. So those are all the culminations of who of, w- of what they make you today. 
Yeah. And we never really brushed on that. And that's something that just slipped past us. Yeah. And I mean, uh, John Paul points it out, but similarly, Joel and Elaine sort of their, their lives are sort of woven together, even though they're not married, they're not uh, in love really, but they go way back. And you, did you watch the deleted scene for this episode? I did. I was going to say that. You can see in the deleted scene, it's really short. It's only like 20 seconds, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, Joel and Elaine are talking about the past times that they were stalking. They were what? Uh, snogging, necking, kissing, oh. <laughs> <laughs> canoodling. Is that what the kids call it? Uh, yeah, it's it's a little extension of, of that scene, uh, the sort of climactic morning after scene. But And so maybe you can help me out here, but I wasn't totally sure it sort of suggests that joel and elaine have known each other obviously for a while but have they known each other since they were like kids here are the clues that i got from that scene joel mentions buying um stockings for elaine you know after i think he says third year or was it third grade so i I couldn't tell was like was that third grade or just like third year of medical school but elaine does also bring up that they got drunk at someone's bar mitzvah at some point, you know, bar mitzvah is like when you're, when you're like 12 or 13 or something. So, or, or maybe a little later, but you know, that still suggests that I think this is the first time that we've learned that Joel and Elaine have known each other for longer than just college, you know? Well, hang on. There's a line in this episode actually, where I believe Joel says he's known her for 20 years. Oh, totally went over my head. Sorry. Yeah, yeah it's been so, a while since I've watched the episode. So, yeah, <laughs> it's all right. so they, they have known, but uh, previous to this episode, I don't think we understood that. I, I could be wrong. but No, I don't seems, think we're led to like believe. Info. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I don't think that we're led to believe that they've known each other for a particularly long period of time, uh, especially not one for 20 years. So doing some math backwards, I mean, Joel knew her since he was seven. Didn't he say he was 28 or 29? This was in in the body in question. Yeah, maybe he's, I can't remember how old. He's 6 million years old, right? uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) In that episode? You're wrong. I'll play the clip. How old am I, O'Connell? 29. Wrong. I'm 4 million years old. Colleen was right. We're, We're all our genes. Yeah, Yeah, but they've known each other particularly long time and their past is also intertwined like they had mentioned Mm -hmm. throughout the episode. And I got to say that that's a really neat, eloquent way to sum up the whole situation. It kind of reminds me of like children in school. You know how the the topics that you learn get more and more complex as the years go on and on? (laughs) Like kids in the 1980s, definitely didn't know anything about electronics or computers and they weren't taught anything about them. And then kids nowadays are taught about them. So your past generations are always teaching the next generation in order to speed, to accelerate the learning, to catch them up to what the present day people are using. So in a way, all children are like the culmination of all other past generations within the metric of school because they have to learn all of the past knowledge. It's like an inherited... Yeah, something almost inherited knowledge in a way. Yeah, and that just really reminded me of that. Oh, hey, I, d- I did want to talk about the How I Met Your Mother reference that John Paul uh, brings up. Yeah. yeah, another How I Met Your Mother reference. It was like, what a coincidence. 
So I think they're talking about Neil Patrick Harris. Yes. And I think they're, you know, obviously in, in real life, he is an openly gay man, but in the show, he is sort of a philanderer. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's kind of a hilarious joke to introduce uh, Neil Patrick, or what is it, Barney's brother, as um, it's like, oh, just so you know, he's gay. And, you know, the, the real surprise is the blatant visual uh, joke of, you know, their mixed race brotherhood. Yeah, it's played even better a few moments later because it's Ted trying to introduce Robin to the brother. Uh-huh. And Robin kind of looks at Ted like, why didn't you tell me he was black? And then Ted goes, oh, I'm sorry. I don't see, you know, <laughs> colored that way. And he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I just wanted to see your face. Oh, uh, yeah. He was like, he was, <laughs> it was a setup in a way. Yeah. There was another joke between the two brothers. Uh, when they were children, they would ask their mother, how come they were different colors? And they were really young. So the mother always gave them different answers. And one uh-huh. of the answers always made me laugh. She said, okay, when I was pregnant with you, Barney, I only ate vanilla ice cream. And when I was pregnant with you, I only ate chocolate ice cream. That's awesome. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about something that's sort of tangentially related, but is huge spoiler territory. Uh, wait, wait, Charles, have you you've seen Spider-Man Homecoming? Yes. Okay. Anyone who hasn't seen it, please like skip two and a half minutes. So the thing that's not a spoiler is Michael Keaton. He's the vulture. He's the villain in Spider-Man Homecoming. But uh, what's sort of amazing reveal is about, I would say, halfway through the movie, maybe a little more, the girl that Peter Parker has a crush on and he's taking out to the homecoming dance. She's played by Laura Harrier, who is black. And what's great is you sort of never get to meet her parents. Maybe you meet her mom, um, but we're acquainted with her through like a house party that she throws and her parents are out of town. And, you know, Peter Parker is always fawning over her. But when he goes to pick her up from her house for the homecoming dance, the door opens and it's Michael Keaton standing there. And of course, this is her father. You know, this is how it would have been. And, and, you know, this is 2019. You can have like interracial marriages. It's not like weird. Like, (laughs) of course, like, why did you not suspect this? But because I guess maybe there's sort of this psychological conditioning, you know, we don't expect obviously for the door to open and, and it, you know, it's uh, Wayne Brady, you know, who appears so that it's, <laughs> it's sort of a great surprise and you catch yourself and you're like, Oh, well, of course. And I think what's great about Spider-Man homecoming is like the first scene, the first shot, Michael Keaton is holding um, a drawing. It's like a child's drawing of the Avengers. So, you know, he has kids. But they're never really, you know, if you're watching closely, yeah. you could be like, I wonder who his kids are. You know, we never see that. Yeah, I, I have to say it's brilliant when he uh, is introduced because I think there's some, it's a montage right before it mm-hmm. of uh, Peter's aunt trying to teach him how to like tie his tie and how yeah. to slow dance. And there's like some uplifting music, like uh, very <laughs> breakfast clubbish, um, 16 Candles, John Hewish music. Yeah. And then when he opens the door, the music cuts and Michael Keaton comes in to frame. And that's great. I remember hearing a story. I think a friend was telling me how he was in the theaters watching it. I think it was the opening premiere of the movie. And right when that scene happened, someone in the front row shouted, Oh, it's her dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's great. That's hilarious. It's such, um, I I love that sort of reveal. Um, okay. In spoiler. I like how Lee and John Paul reference that the town is much more cultured than Joel. And they even used that Michael J. Fox yeah. movie. Uh, what is it called? Doc? 
Doc Hollywood, which I actually have never seen. I've heard the comparison before, but... Yeah, how it was, you know, like a city slicker being into a country, Mm -hmm. and it turns out that they're actually much more better. Uh, Well, not better, but uh, (laughs) much more uh, cultured than you would imagine. Yeah, Yeah. and that is a common theme that's played throughout Northern Exposure, but it's really hammered home within Adam, because he's much more... There's much more within him than you would imagine just being a homeless man wandering throughout the forest of uh, Celery, Alaska. Yeah, Celery, Alaska. uh, (laughs) I love that. Yeah, uh, and I like that observation that he brought up. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I I think we find that a lot in Northern Exposure. There's a deeper understanding to be had past the the face value sort of stereotype. That's kind of what Lee was um, getting into there. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about that I thought was really funny. Lee was saying how when he was first watching the show, he was it was kind of late at night. And, you know, of course, the, the first scene is Chris waking up to the African drums. But, you know, Lee mentioned he's familiar with the show, you know, being set in Alaska. And he was just really confused to be like, wait, is this, do they really think that the natives look like this and act like this? <laughs> he totally mixed the cultures up. Um, but then, yes, he realized it was a dream. <laughs> yeah, I actually forgot that these people would have no context. <laughs> yeah. So you, wouldn't know, you wouldn't know it was a dream. You would just be like, this is a weird Alaskan town that has uh, <laughs> tribal dancers all the time playing at night. <laughs> I like how Jumpa also admitted that he is the one that has Mason's DVDs, but also yeah. will refuse to give them back. He said, yeah, I like how he said he's going to, he'll fall on that sword. <laughs> yeah, refuses to give them back, but hopefully we'll, uh, we'll pick them back up and start watching them again. So once again, thank you, John, Paul, and Lee for, for doing this. I like how they they said they watched it separately, then they watched it together, and then they did this recording. And uh, yeah, I think they have a a really strong future in podcasting should they ever want to spin off their own uh, podcast, I think. Yeah, the Zimmermans. Yeah, so we'll be back with the next episode, season three, episode eight. It's called A Hunting We Will Go. But we are going to take a brief hiatus, you know, for the holiday season, We're going to take maybe a week or two pause in our programming. Uh, We'll try not to let it linger too long. And in the meantime, write in to northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know if there's any corrections you have or anything that we missed. Uh, We love to bring it up on future episodes anytime someone writes in and, and points out something that we missed. Yeah, don't just write in if there's any corrections, but about the corrections, because I know that we definitely messed up somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so please just write in at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we await your email. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Charles, happy holidays, and I'll see you on the next episode. Yeah, happy holidays, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to John Paul and Lee for being our guest analysts. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. Oh my gosh. What's up? Oh man. Sandy Smolin is back. Wait, he was a... He's the director of this episode. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I actually was not a fan of this episode that much, so we'll see. Yeah, I wasn't uh, either, but for probably different reasons than you, maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it on air.